wrote this message at the Inglewood Bird Sanctuary. So if it's no good, then I'll just have to say it was for the birds. But maybe some prayer will help. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to uh, open your word and to see how the events of the past relate to us today and how you can give us victory in our lives against great obstacles and even great opposition. And uh, so, Lord, we uh, listen to your voice and we uh, attentively want to have you teach us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So in consumer news, have any of you bought a new VCR lately? Or a cassette recorder? Or maybe a Nikon cool scan that uses firewire instead of USB cables? Of course not. There is no market for obsolete technology. And here's what else you won't find. You won't find Home Depot selling along with their plywood what was once called a magic mineral which makes buildings fireproof, rat-proof, and virtually indestructible. A material called asbestos, not currently in stock. And you won't find uh, pharmacies selling prescriptions for thalidomide for uh, pregnant mothers. That would be an atrocity. You won't find farmers using DDT as a pesticide that was something that uh, we discovered how toxic it was, especially to wildlife like eagles, and it was discontinued. And if you remember the 50s, uh, you may recall that we used to put brill cream in our hair, and it did to our scalp what the Exxon Valdez oil spill did to the Alaskan coastline. We're talking severe ecological damage. That cranial oil slick clogged our pores and made our hair fall out. Fortunately, I realized the danger just in time. Others were not so lucky. We used to think that fluoride was a communist conspiracy, but no, it was Brill Cream, a master plot patented by Khrushchev and the Kremlin. In other words, the good news is that we have learned from our mistakes. We won't get fooled again. Unfortunately, that's not true in the spiritual realm because our culture is making the same blunders that ancient Israel made in the book of Judges. Today we're in chapter 4. It says, After Ehud died, the Israelites once again did evil in the eyes of the Lord. This wasn't their first time. They were repeat offenders. Turning away from God and embracing idolatry was a disaster last time and the time before that. So, let's do it again. They say that insanity is repeating our mistakes and expecting a different result. So, let's do it again. What could possibly go wrong? It's all good. Everything is awesome. Verse 2 says, So the Lord sold them into the hands of Jabin, the king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazar. The commander of his army was Sisera. It says in verse 3 that Sisera had 900 iron chariots and that he cruelly oppressed the Israelites for 20 years. 
Now what? Well, be patient because our researchers are working on a solution and it should be available in about 20 years. But if all else fails, we can always pray. Verse 3 says that Sisera cruelly oppressed the Israelites for 20 years and then they cried out to the Lord for help. We waste so much time eliminating other options, figuring out what doesn't work, until finally there's a breakthrough. Verse 4 says that Deborah, a prophetess, was leading Israel at the time. She held court under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the Israelites came to her to have their disputes decided. So before Judge Judy and Ruth Bader Ginsburg, there was your honor, Deborah, the prophetess, presiding, all rise, another unlikely hero. She was a spiritual leader of the whole nation and a respected arbiter in tribal disputes. She was also a best-selling author. Chapter 5 is a poem that she wrote about the events that are described in chapter 4. In chapter 5, verses 6 and 7, we have a description of the state of the nation in Israel. It says there, the roads were abandoned. Travelers took to winding paths, and village life in Israel ceased. It almost sounds like what we've been experiencing during this pandemic. Remember April? Very light traffic on the roads. No gridlock on the Deerfoot. Businesses closed. No schools. We couldn't even go to church on Easter Sunday. Well, their situation was even worse because there were enemy soldiers eager to ambush and assault any Hebrew who happened to be in the right place at the wrong time, like the drive through at Jerusalem Shwarma. So they kept off the main roads and they practiced extreme social distancing. Well, now Deborah did not consider these dangers as simply the new normal. This is something we have to get used to. No, she figured there's something has to be done if only she could find the right man for the job. Verse 6 says, she sent for Barak. Now, where have we heard that name before? When Barack Obama first caught the attention of the media, conservative Republicans were very suspicious. Their intruder alarms went off. Obama sounded too much like Osama with a Billy Bob. Well, it turns out that Barack is a biblical name right here in the book of Judges. How about that, Mythbusters? Verse 6 says, She sent for Barak and said to him, The Lord, the God of Israel, commands you, Go, take with you 10,000 men of Naphtali and Zebulun, and lead the way to Mount Tabor. I will lure Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his troops to the Kishon River and give him into your hands. How about that? A woman with a plan. All they needed was for God to show up. It was a sound strategy, except for one thing. The NRA had been disbanded. Chapter 5, verse 8 explains, 
Not a shield or a spear was seen among 40,000 in Israel. Jabin had enforced a policy of unilateral disarmament. Israel had no weapons. So that means we're going to have to postpone our rebellion until a more opportune time. We'll obey God as soon as we can manufacture some swords and shields. And we'll need an iron smelter to, to build chariots. Jabin has 900 weapons of mass destruction. We'll never defeat him without iron chariots. Not a shield or a spear was seen among 40,000 in Israel. Do you ever feel unarmed and vulnerable in this present darkness? It seems that the ungodly have all the weapons. Their ideas dominate the media and the government. The intellectual heavyweights of our culture scoff at evangelicals. They ridicule our simple, unscientific worldview and our medieval morality. Progressives dominate the moral high ground and huff and puff with self-righteous indignation, scolding those who refuse to conform. And some even threaten us with the spears of malicious ultimatums. If you raise your children to believe the Bible, that's child abuse, and we might have to take them away from you. The spiritual warfare is intensifying. Hostility is escalating. The enemy's strategy in all of this is to make us ashamed of Jesus and to question the Bible, or at least to amend it so that, that it's more inclusive and tolerant. That's why in China, Xi Jinping has forbidden the first commandment. It doesn't support the communist worldview. But we cannot blunt the blade of the double-edged sword. Once we do that, we are truly defenseless because God's word is still the most powerful weapon in our arsenal. That's why Paul admonishes us in 2 Timothy chapter 3, beginning at verse 16. All scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word, <clears throat> be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. Well, for the forces of Barak, <clears throat> it was definitely out of season. To go into battle now would be suicidal. But you couldn't expect a woman to understand that. Deborah had no previous military experience. But she had faith. And she had discerned the will of God. And Barak was counting on that. So much so that in verse 8 it says, Barak said to her, if you go with me, I will go. But if you don't go with me, I won't go. Barak was the bravest warrior left in that demoralized nation. But he needed a woman to hold his hand. Sounds like another unlikely hero. 
It was as if his faith was in her faith in God. Verse 9, very well, Deborah said, I will go with you, but because of the way you are going about this, the honor will not be yours, for the Lord will hand Sisera over to a woman. You see, every commander wanted maximum glory in victory. And uh, that could only come by slaying the leader of your enemy. Barak would not have that uh, privilege because he hesitated to fully trust God himself, so he was disqualified from achieving the highest honor. Sisera would fall, but not by his hand. Another woman would become his executioner. So Deborah went with Barak to Kadesh, where he summoned Zebulun and Naphtali. 10,000 men followed him, and Deborah also went with him. Verse 12, when they told Sisera that Barak had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera, Sisera gathered together his 900 iron chariots and all the men with him to the Kishon River. And there was Sisera with the most powerful army the nation had ever seen. It must have been an intimidating sight to behold, like a peewee hockey team facing the NHL All-Stars. Sisera was salivating. He, he had never been so confident in all of his life. Oh, it's great to be on the right side of history. What could possibly go wrong? Verse 14, then Deborah said to Barak, go this day the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Has not the Lord gone ahead of you? So Barak went down Mount Tabor, followed by 10,000 men. Into the valley of death charged the 10,000, believing that God was going to show up. Verse 15, at Barak's advance, the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and the army by the sword, and Sisera abandoned his chariot and fled on foot. Now wait a minute. Are we missing something here? How is this possible? Well, once again, chapter 5 provides the color commentary. Chapter 5, verse 20 says, From the heavens the stars fought. From their courses they fought against Sisera. So here we have the first episode of Star Wars. Now, of course, this is a figure of speech, telling us that the weather got ugly. The elements proved to be unfavorable to the Canaanite forces. The problem was that Sisera had iron chariots, and they were not all-terrain vehicles. They didn't have mud flaps, four-wheel drive, or rack and pinion steering. Iron chariots are invincible on flat ground, dry, flat ground. But that day, the rain fell mainly on the plain. And the probability of precipitation was over 90%. That's rare for a semi-desert climate like Canaan. But there was a cloudburst and a heavy downpour. The streams were all swollen, the tributaries overflowing. And the river collected all the runoff and spread it across the floodplain. So much for Sisera's tactical advantage. 
His army was not designed to operate under these conditions. I'm sure Sisera would have wanted to call a timeout. Let's postpone this contest due to rain. But he could only watch as his army disintegrated. Well-trained soldiers slipped and fell like clumsy buffoons, like the Keystone Cops. Harnesses got tangled, chariots skidded and collided. It would have made a hilarious YouTube video. It was a disaster. You could have made this into a movie and called it Chariots in the Mire. Verse 21 says, The river Kishon swept them away. Sisera's army panicked. Unfortunately, they couldn't run very fast because their armor slowed them down. So they discarded any excess baggage. And because they were traveling light, the Hebrews quickly caught up with them and put them out of their misery. Verse 16 says, But Barak pursued the chariots and the army, and all the troops of Sisera fell by the sword. Not a man was left. Well, how is that possible? Because they didn't have any weapons. Well, I guess the Hebrews just picked up the swords that the Canaanites dropped and, and as they ran for their lives. Not a man was left. That day the Israelites were overcomers. All the troops of Sisera fell by the sword. Not a man was left. You know, this is a picture of exactly what can happen in the spiritual realm. God can turn defeat into victory in a very short time. There's a word for that. It's called revival. Revival is when the showers of blessing fall in such abundance that the scoffers and the mockers and the sacrilegious talkers are so overwhelmed they panic, drop their weapons, and run. Their arrogance is swept away. So much for being on the right side of history. They were on the wrong side of the river. The only question is, what is the probability of precipitation in 2020? Because currently the unrighteous are standing tall, proud, confident. But a revival can take their feet out from under them and they'll be fumbling and bumbling towards the nearest exit. Now, we can't accomplish that. That only can happen when God shows up. Let's follow one of the uh, deserters, one of the escapees from this battle. It says in verse 17, Sisra, however, fled on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, because there were friendly relations between, the, between Jabin, king of Hazar, and the clan of Heber the Kenite. Jael went out to meet Sisera and said to him, Come, my lord, come right in. Don't be afraid. So he entered her tent, and she put a covering over him. And maybe he thought, Thanks be to Baal and Asherah, the gods of Canaan, for delivering me from death. Perhaps... This will only be a temporary setback. Sisera will rise again. I will get my revenge. I'm thirsty, he said. Please give me some water. 
So she opened a skin of milk, gave him a drink, and covered him up. Stand in the doorway of the tent, he told her. If someone comes by and asks you, is anyone here, say no. But J.L., Heber's wife, picked up a tent peg and a hammer and went quietly to him while he lay fast asleep, exhausted. See, in the Bedouin community, it was the uh, task of the women to pitch the tents. And unlikely heroes use a variety of weapons. In Ephesians 6, the armor of God is modeled after the standard issue of the Roman legions. But in the Old Testament, some of the weapons are less conventional, like ox goads, jawbones, slingshots, and tent pegs. It says she drove the tent peg through his temple into the ground, and he died. Now, on one hand, this violated every custom of hospitality. Because if you invite someone into your tent, then they are under your protection, even at the cost of your life. Jael was not minding her manners. And notice her decisiveness. She drove the stake right through the skull, into the ground. It seems rather extreme. Was this overkill? Or was this Judgment Day? Archaeological discoveries have revealed that the Canaanite rulers were even worse than ISIS. Sisera had brutally oppressed the chosen people, no doubt slaughtering anyone in his path, men, women, and children. In fact, the Canaanites would take children and offer them as sacrifices to their demonic gods. They did unspeakable things. J.L. felt sympathy for Sisera's victims. So this was her opportunity to strike a blow for freedom. It was a long overdue execution for which J.L. is commended. Chapter 5, verse 24. Most blessed of women be J.L., the wife of Heber the Kenite. Most blessed of tent-dwelling women. J.L., is another unlikely hero. Verse 22 in chapter um, 4 says, Barak came by in pursuit of Sisera, and Jael went out to meet him. Come, she said, I will show you the man you're looking for. So he went in with her, and there lay Sisera with a tent peg through his temple, dead. And so Sisera was not only defeated, he was utterly disgraced. See, there was at least some honor when you die on the battlefield. But Sisera had panicked. He ran away like a coward. And he died by the hand of a woman. In that culture, that was the ultimate insult for a proud warrior. That would add even more shame to his legacy. Enough to eradicate 20 years of military dominance, which in the end was all emptiness and the futility of chasing the wind. Verse 24 says, And the hand of the Israelites grew stronger and stronger against Jabe and the Canaanite king until they destroyed him. And chapter 5, verse 31 says, So may all your enemies perish, O Lord, 
But may though they who love you be like the sun when it rises in its strength. And then the land had peace for 40 years. Passages like this are sobering reminders that judgment day is coming. God does not excuse his enemies if they don't repent. If there's no revival, then judgment day is much closer than we think. So in the meantime, what is to be our role? We know what J.L. did, but what would Jesus do? Well, in the book of Judges, Barak overcame the enemy because Deborah gave him an effective strategy. We too have a strategy to enable us to overcome in our generation. But it's not something that involves hurting anyone physically. It's explained very clearly in Romans chapter 12, verses 17 to 21, where Paul writes, Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Do not take revenge, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, It is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Our role is to be overcomers, and this is our strategy. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. I'm glad that God's word says that, because could you imagine how stressful it would be if we would have to uh, enact justice on the enemies of God? I'm so glad it says, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. That's his responsibility. Ours is to not be overcome by evil, but to overcome evil with good. We have a strategy to be overcomers. But we also need a weapon. Ehud thrust a double-edged dagger right through Eglon, in the front and out the back. Jael pounded a sharp tent peg through Sisera's head. They were not shadow boxing or pulling their punches. Well, we have an even more effective weapon that has the power to penetrate. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 says, The word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to the dividing of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. May we... Never fail to use God's word with boldness and conviction, not just poking around a little bit, not politely fencing, but passionately thrusting it into the midst of our culture with the truth that sets us free. Don't be shy with God's word. Get some leverage into it. That's how we overcome the enemy and their ideology. And that's really part of the problem because there are too many who are very hesitant and half-hearted. In her victory song, Deborah criticizes the tribes that didn't join Barak in this battle. Chapter 5, verses 15 and 16. The princes of Issachar were with Deborah. Yes, Issachar was with Barak, rushing after him into the valley. 
In the districts of Reuben, there was much searching of heart. Why did you stay among the campfires to hear the whistling for the flocks? In the districts of Reuben, there was much searching of heart. Reuben never got involved. While others were marching into battle, in the tribe of Reuben, there was soul searching. Should we or shouldn't we? <laughs> the enemy has 900 chariots. What have we got? Not even a sword. They had committee meetings. Many proposals were considered. Motions were tabled so that at the end of the day, they did exactly nothing. In the districts of Reuben, there was much searching of heart. Does that ever happen to us? Just think of all the times that God has spoken to you through his word, through a worship service. Think of his promises. Think of the opportunities that God sets before us. If we just sit on the sidelines and don't get involved, if we don't speak up, if nothing changes, then wasn't it all just a waste of time? Or maybe even worse, maybe it was counterproductive. Vance Havner writes, Lofty impulses, unexpressed in action, react upon us, and degeneration sets in. If we have lofty impulses, but never express them in action, there's a reaction that takes place, and degeneration sets in. In other words, if we don't translate godly conviction into righteous living, it'll backfire, and the last condition of that man will be worse than before. Because if you're not going to do anything about it, your heart will harden. If you don't obey God's word, if you don't sincerely care about people in need, if you don't forgive, if you stop worshiping, your heart will harden and your soul will dehydrate. Excuses are toxic to healthy spiritual growth. See, when the enemy is huffing and puffing, it's not a time for searching of heart. It's a time for unlikely heroes and overcomers. People just like you. It's time for people who will overcome evil with good. For people who return blessing for insult. For people who pray for a breakthrough and don't give up. For people who forgive those who don't deserve it. For people who are patient and kind. Who do not delight in evil but rejoice with the truth. For people who always trust always hope, always persevere. This is a time for people who are not ashamed of the gospel because there is no other name by which we can be saved. Eternal life is through Jesus Christ alone. I'm Pastor Zig. 
and I approve this message. Let's pray. Father, it's so easy to be intimidated by the ideas that are contrary to your word. It's so easy to feel inferior and to just retreat and back off. But this is not a time for, for that. This is a time for us to go on the offensive and to overcome evil with good. Lord, show us how to do that in the months and even the years to come because this is spiritual warfare and we have a role to play and we are not to waste any more time searching our hearts because you've called us to the battlefield and you've shown us where victory lies and it's through the one who gives us the victory even Christ Jesus our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen.